Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, the real punishment is John Travolta's wig. This is The Punisher. Welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone. Welcome to the Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like The Punisher from 2004, no less. There are several Punisher movies. We're talking about 2004, the Tom Jane Punisher. But before we get into that, Ian, how are you doing this week? Well, it's a tough week. By coincidence, this episode came in the middle of some new and horrible and extremely sad incidents of gun violence in the U.S. So I'm recording this added message after our initial taping, because even though The Punisher has a fantastical comic book tone and even a sometimes laughable execution, our discussion will feature descriptions of gun violence throughout the episode. In light of recent events, we understand this is an especially sensitive topic, and we wanted to give our listeners a chance to decide if you're comfortable listening. If not, we totally understand. We love you, and we'll see you next time. Now back to the show already in progress quite dark, but I'm excited to talk about it. I don't know. Maybe it's just something about how silly it is. It doesn't feel like we have to treat the material with any kind of gravity. Yeah. For a movie where so many people get slaughtered, uh, none of it feels important. Thank goodness. You don't feel bad for literally anybody. I guess we can be thankful for that about this movie. It sort of disappoints. It disappointed me because it isn't as gritty as I wanted it to be, but you know, that could be a plus for a lot of people. Exactly. Exactly. For a movie with a body count this high, it's downright breezy. But before we get into it, uh, did you happen to watch anything this week that you wanted to share? with the listeners. I did. I watched a little movie called Morbius. It's Morbin time. <laughs> it's Morbin time. I might be the only person who's actually watched the movie. Everyone is talking about this movie and nobody's seen it. And it's so widely mocked on Twitter and elsewhere that I expected it to be mm-hmm. horrible. So I got one of those setups where like, this is going to be the worst thing ever. And it was a middle of the road, decent Marvel superhero movie. I kind of liked the style of the particular super vampire fighting action that they get into in it. As far as seeing different superheroes' powers and how they work, this was was a pretty cool one. So that's something you can enjoy in a superhero movie. And Jared Leto, who is definitely a weirdo, is playing a weirdo in this movie. His character is meant to be super weird and he pulls it off. So that kind of worked for me and it's got other good people in it. Matt Smith is good. Jared Harris, is that the other guy? Jared Harris for Mad Men, yeah. Yeah. So it's all right. Kind of like fine if you want some action fun on a Saturday night. It might be eligible for this podcast, to be honest. It's kind of on the borderline. You let me know. And listeners, you let me know too, if you think we should cover this movie, but it cost $83 million is what the reported budget is. And it made $163 million, so it didn't double its budget. And you know these superhero movies typically come with a pretty hefty marketing budget as well. So I think it's safe to say it lost money theatrically. It's probably on the bubble, but we could cover it if there is a demand for it. Let us know. I have not watched it yet. I'll, I'll be honest with you. It's been sitting there in the top of my queue like a turd that has yet to be flushed. <laughs> and I just can't bring myself to dedicate, a, what is it, an hour and 40 minutes to this movie? Yeah. Yeah. I, I've got other things going on. It goes by. If we don't actually do an episode, I would love to have you do a little check-in at the top of some other show once you watched it because I just I don't know I feel like now I'm alone I'm stranded on this island because I watched this movie this island yeah yeah. everyone thinks it's just a giant turd and I'm like I don't know it was okay 
This is shocking. Uh, you're the first person I've heard have anything positive to say about this movie. That wasn't ironic and in meme form. So for you, Ian, anything for you. I'll check it out and I'll, Thank I'll you. let you know what I think. That's very kind. But, but then I think if I do watch it and it's really bad, I'm going to want to cover it just so me and you can argue about whether okay. or not it's good. That sounds like a fun time. I went a different route. You went with one of the more high profile, big name releases of the past few months. I went sure. with a little quiet release that I think went straight to streaming. I don't remember hearing about it going to theaters. I checked out have you even oh. heard of this movie? No, I have not. It's directed by Riley Stearns, who made a movie I really enjoyed called The Art of Self-Defense, which was a Jesse Eisenberg movie that came out 2019, I think. He's got a very interesting style. His characters deliver their dialogue in very kind of flat, unaffected tones, and it's very matter-of-fact dialogue. You could be almost mistaken for thinking people are giving bad performances at first, if you're not familiar with his other work. But he's working with performers that are very dynamic in their other roles. So you know it's a choice with him. People like Karen Gillan, Aaron Paul. Aaron Paul is famously emotive in his acting. There's so many memes of his just anguished face. He can go big when he wants to. <laughs> so he's just giving like very flat, unaffected performances. But it's an interesting concept. Near future semi-dystopia where if you find out you're going to die, you can buy a clone of yourself. They learn who you are and can take on your personality so that your family will have a replacement for you when you die. Oh, shit. But then the main character, played by Karen Gillan, is diagnosed with a terminal disease. And then, spoiler alert, it's in the trailer and also the synopsis of the movie, so I don't care. She doesn't die. She makes a miraculous recovery, and now she has a clone. And the rules are your clone can now demand that they are the person, and you have to die. Oh. So they basically duel to the death to see who gets to keep living the life as the other person. <laughs> Neat. That is high concept sci-fi. I like that stuff. Super high concept. Again, it's delivered in a very flat, matter-of-fact way, but I still think... I think it's worthwhile. I would check it out. It's got some surprising twists along the way. It's pretty short, like an hour and 40 minutes. It's an hour and 34 minutes. Nice. Checking out the IMDb here. And it's got good performances. Small cast feels very much like a COVID production. And if you like that, then I would check out the movie I mentioned previously, The Art of Self-Defense, because that is probably a better movie than this one. But if you're digging the vibes from one, you'll probably like the other to some degree. And you get to see Aaron Paul doing hip hop calisthenics. That sounds fun. Now that you've described the concept, that reminds me a lot of the Paul Rudd show, Living With yourself. And I really enjoyed that. I'm down for another take on this genre. I didn't watch Living With Yourself. I remember when it came out, I meant to. I feel like streaming shows, like if you don't catch them when they're hot, they just kind of disappear into the ether. Yeah. Hard to go backwards. You know, like I, I remember wanting to watch it and I didn't have time at that moment in my life and it just kind of disappeared. But I was reading a couple of reviews because I'm one of those guys that watches a movie and then reads reviews to see if I liked it or not. Yep. And a bunch of them mentioned Living With Yourself. So look at you uh, coming out with that reference, right? Quick on your feet. Good stuff. I Googled it while you were talking because I couldn't remember it. <laughs> I'm like, it was a show with the guy and then the premise. I managed to come up with the name. Good old Paul Rudd. Yeah, but uh, The Punisher from 2004. Ian, did you have any familiarity with this movie? Had you seen it before? Did you see it in theaters? Did you, I don't know, were you in charge of compiling the soundtrack or something? Like, you like <laughs> to whip out random tidbits at us? I've got no tidbit for this. I know that I had seen it. Probably rented it on DVD back when Netflix was mailing out DVDs. But I couldn't remember much about it. So it was another one of those that like seen it, but it was also new to me this time. I don't know. Oh, that seems to be like my whole life now. At this point, if you ask me, and did you go to high school? I'd be like, you know what? I know I did go to high school. I've got a diploma. <laughs> I don't really remember know? anything in particular that happened. Uh, so if you show me the yearbook, it'll be all fresh again. Well, I was a massive Punisher fan when this movie came out. I anticipated this movie for years. I saw it opening weekend. I think I saw it twice opening weekend. Cool. I'm pretty sure I saw it three times in the theater overall. Nice. I loved it. I had the Tom Jane, the Marvel Legends statue. Cool. Punisher on my desk. 
And then I kind of grew out of my Punisher fandom and this movie just receded into my memory as like a footnote. Oh yeah, that Tom Jane Punisher movie. I remember it wasn't too bad. And I never thought about it again until I was putting together a list for this podcast. And I was like, oh yeah, that didn't make any money. Um, <laughs> Despite your best efforts. Right. I dragged a bunch of friends to go see it with me. Some of them were also Punisher fans. Some of them were just friends of mine that were being kind. But yeah, that's like a thing that used to happen is sometimes Marvel movies would lose money. Uh, yeah. It doesn't happen a lot or ever anymore, apparently. But it used to be a real problem if they had. And For this real. was one of them. Yeah, this is a poster child. Yeah. And then actually the sequel, not the sequel, we'll get into more about whether Warzone is a sequel or a reboot later. Uh -huh. Warzone lost even more money. This movie cost $33 million to make and it made $54 million. So it's not great. It lost some money, but it was a big hit on DVD sales yeah. and rentals, which is why they had the idea to make another Punisher movie four years later. But Punisher Warzone had the same budget almost. I think it had a $35 million budget and it made $10 million theatrically. That's a bomb. So yeah, stay tuned in like a year or two. We'll be we'll be pulling up the Skull t-shirt again and going back in. <laughs> Imagine how much seaweed and crud it'll have built up on it by then when we pull it out of the Puerto Rican surf. It's really intense. <laughs> no, there was like a, I swear I made an appointment to get a Punisher Skull tattooed on me somewhere. And oh, wow. Canceled it like a few days before. I'm really glad I didn't go through with that. <laughs> yes. It's kind of been co-opted now. So. Yeah, that would have a whole different meaning. That would be a really iffy thing to have on your body. Glad I didn't go through with that. But yeah, big fan of the, the Punisher character. And the Garth Ennis comics were my favorite. He did a bunch of different runs on Punisher. He was the mastermind behind the Punisher Max comic, which was Marvel's over 18 line of comic books. They, oh. they didn't have that many characters that really fit that vibe. I think the Inhumans had one. Daredevil had one. Cool. And and the Punisher was like the big one. And those were just brutal, grim, dark, violent comics. But most of this movie is based on Welcome Back, Frank, which was a Garth Ennis run that was highly acclaimed. And Jonathan Hensley, the director, lifts some sequences wholesale from the comic, but okay. we'll get into the ways in which they do and don't work comparatively. That all said, I'm, I'm rambling because I actually have a real emotional connection to this movie. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about the creation of it? Yeah, let's hear how this thing happened. All right. So... In the year 2000, Marvel signed a deal with Artisan Entertainment, which would eventually become a subsidiary of Lionsgate, to turn 15 Marvel characters into movies and TV shows. Despite having the rights to characters like Captain America and Thor at their disposal, Artisan decided the first movie out of the gate would be The Punisher, probably because his lack of superpowers would keep the budget manageable. We're gonna make a superhero movie as long as he's not super and not a hero. In April 2002, Jonathan Hensley was announced as the writer and director of the project. Hensley had made a name for himself as a screenwriter and script doctor on action movies, doing work on films like Die Hard with a Vengeance, Jumanji, Armageddon, and Gone in 60 Seconds. Last own favorite Tom Jane, fresh off his starring role in the absolutely bananas Dreamcatcher, was cast in the titular role and pre-production was underway. Well, fuck me, Freddy. Hensley expected about $60 million for his budget, as this was the norm for high-profile action movies at the time, but was disappointed to find out he would only receive $33 million to make the comic book come to life. This led to Hensley having to change the setting from New York City to Tampa, Florida, and rewriting the script several times to pare down some of the more ambitious action set pieces. This might explain why the Punisher is such a prankster in this movie, choosing to play mind games and set up his enemies to turn on each other, rather than just, you know, blowing them up. Yes, revenge is a dish best served cheaply. With the release date of April 16, 2004, the movie landed with a resounding thud, being savaged by critics and largely ignored by audiences. The film currently sits at 29% on Rotten Tomatoes and earned just $54.7 million worldwide, losing somewhere around $8 million theatrically. 
Hope for a sequel was low, but the film outperformed expectations on home media, selling enough DVDs to get the studio interested in a sequel. The studio must be gluttons for punishment. Hensley and Jane originally signed on to return, with Hensley producing a first draft of the script in 2006, but both had issues with the direction the studio wanted to go in and eventually dropped out. A reboot was settled on, with Ray Stevenson signing on to play an older, more grizzled Punisher and Lexi Alexander being chosen to direct. That movie would become Punisher Warzone, which would be its own episode someday, but Jane never gave up on the character. He reprised his role in the 2012 unofficial short film Dirty Laundry, which was well received by comic book fans and was cited by current Punisher John Bernthal as the inspiration for how he would portray the character. And after I wrote that, I even discovered that there was some discussion between Bernthal and Jane about having Jane direct a comic book movie starring Bernthal as the Punisher, which would have been cool. That would be neat. They definitely broed it down on Twitter there for a minute. A couple of cool actors that we like. So that's fun to see yeah. them connecting over this character that they got to share. You know, I watched, because you told me about Dirty Laundry, I watched that and I love Tom Jane. He was one of the cool things about the Punisher movie. He's still cool in Dirty Laundry. Decidedly less buff in Dirty Laundry, though. <laughs> He was not yeah. putting in like the six months of weightlifting they did for this one. Yeah, he kept his shirt on. <laughs> but as much as I respect both those actors, I don't see what John Barnful took from this little short film. It's 11 minutes long. And the whole conceit of it is that the Punisher is absolutely blasé. And it's like a washed up older Punisher. He's living in a van and he just sort of sits there while bad stuff happens. And then at the end, he kicks into action and punishes some people. But would you say it's an acting performance that makes an impression on you or that you like would even know what to take from it? No, not so much the acting. I think more what they were going for with Dirty Laundry was maybe we make this and show a studio the tone we like uh -huh. for a Punisher movie. And and inspire them to throw some money at us to go make this movie because it really rejects all the more comic booky ideas that this movie and especially Warzone, which is just really cartoony action over the okay. top violent. It rejects that tone for a much more somber, realistic tone. But yeah, Jane doesn't really factor into it all that much. He's capable of doing good acting, but yeah, there's not much to be seen there from him particularly. Ron Perlman probably gives it the best performance in Dirty Laundry. <laughs> yeah, but it's fun. As a little fan movie, it's cool and I get why everyone's excited for it. Because if you're a comic book fanboy and you're like, oh, Tom Jane is so cool. When he actually gets involved in making a fan film, that's like the coolest thing ever. The closest example I could think of is what Ryan Reynolds kind of did with the Deadpool character. He leaked a bunch of test screen footage, him in the suit making quips and, and stuff to try to get fan interest up and it worked. This was before all that, if I'm not mistaken, but it was clearly an attempt to whip up the fan base into a fervor and it didn't quite do that much, right. but it's still one of those interesting relics of the early 10s where he was like, oh, Tom Jane decided to, and Ron Perlman just took a day and made this cool little artifact that we'll yeah. always have to refer back to. It's fun for that, seeing big names making little home movies. I think you can still watch it on YouTube. If you can, I'll put it in the show notes for everybody. Cool. So that was my experience with The Punisher. I was very excited to go see it. Spoiler alert, revisiting it now, it is not the most successful movie I've ever seen. No. It's got some charm. It's not without merit. It's not a complete failure, but it's got some real problems too. Yeah, it's not a total mess. The parts connect. You can follow the story and it doesn't really go off the deep end. It, sometimes it tests your patience and sometimes it just mildly disappoints. And that's always the problem with comic book movies of these heroes that are so beloved. You come in and you're like, oh, I know exactly what I want it to do. And it's hard for them to ever do that. But this movie doesn't get real close for most of it in terms of satisfying what you might hope 
before. Yeah, and I, I think some of its issues are definitely budget related. Like the Punisher in Tampa just feels wrong. You know, the Punisher's a New York City guy. <laughs> yeah. You, you could put him in Chicago. I'd buy it. Even in Pittsburgh, Buffalo. Like he needs warehouses and industrial rundown areas. And it's got to look cold. Like put him in Detroit, Cleveland, whatever. But he's got to be somewhere like along the Rust Belt or in the, the cold Northeast. It just fits his character much better. So having palm trees in the background of a Punisher story <laughs> is just fucking weird. I totally agree with that. But at the same time, when it started, I'm like, a fucking Tampa superhero? What the heck is this? They'd have to wait another 20 years until they got Tom Brady to have a superhero of this stature come and grace their town. And he's he's a transplanted New England hero. <laughs> That's true. He came from the cold Northeast. He, he made his bones elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but like, there's actually something fun about it. And it's almost got a little bit of a Miami Vice vibe to it because we'll talk about it, the story. It starts out with an undercover sting. It's interesting you evoke Miami Vice because one of my complaints about the movie is that Hensley as a director... He's got like a TV vibe to him, you know, it's shot almost like a TV show. There's not a lot of big crane shots or certainly there wasn't drone shots back then, but there's no helicopter shots. It's shot very like close and tight, like you would a TV show when you got to make 14 or 15 of these in a year and you got to keep the budget on track. Like it's not showy or flashy filmmaking at all. It's it's a little boring visually. And actually my take on that, what happened to me was I turned this movie on, I'm watching it and I'm like, I didn't realize Tom Jane was that old. I'm like, 1994, he was making this movie. This is definitely a 1994 movie. I can tell by the quality of the film grain and the look of everything in it. Oh, wait a minute. 2004? What? I honestly had to go back and check myself three times. Wait, it was 94, right? No. This fucking thing came out the same year as The Aviator, you know, (laughs) or even Spider-Man 2. You know, those films are bright and vibrant. There's a real pop to them. Yeah, Punisher does feel very much like a 90s movie. Yeah. You know? And I like, I think content wise, both the look and the vibe of, hey, we're doing a, a cheap, tough guy gangster revenge film. Vibe wise, I'd go even further back. I feel like this is like a 70s, early 80s throwback in terms of its storyline and tone. You know, it's such a, yeah. such well-trodden territory at this point for a guy's family to get killed. Maybe not as spectacularly as in this movie. <laughs> and then yeah. him going like a revenge plot, you know, like it's straight Bronson shit. That's true. And that goes even further back. But as we'll come to find out when we talk into maybe one this movie failed. I guess the revenge thriller was making quite a comeback in this particular month. So yeah. it had some competition at the box office. In general, I think you are praising Hensley if you're saying that it did remind you of 70s revenge action movies. He talks about that's exactly the vibe he was going for and he watched a bunch of old shit going into this. So to that extent, you could say it was a success for the director, but it doesn't feel fresh for that same reason. It doesn't feel like we're entering this new era when people were just excited to start to see Marvel characters on screen and then they don't quite hit. Yeah. And you got what was one of the best comic movies of all time, or what still is, in my opinion, with Spider-Man 2 the same year and you had X2 the year before. So Mm. they were starting to get into their groove because I think the first X-Men movie is still pretty bad if you watch it now. They were clearly still figuring out how to handle this type of material in a way that felt both respectful to it, but also updated enough where it didn't just scream cheese all over the screen. So people were figuring out this medium and The Punisher seems like it would be a easy superhero to adapt for the screen because so much of his storylines and the characters involved in there's really nothing too fantastical or supernatural going on. It's maybe a heightened reality, but it's still grounded in some sort of reality. I don't know why it's so hard for people to get that right. They're now 0 for 3 with movies. You had the Dolph Lundgren Punisher. That was the less said about that, the better. You got this one and then you got the Ray Stevenson Punisher, which leans hard into just being, like I said, a basically live action cartoon. Uh, I guess the Bernthal Punisher series fucking put me to sleep. I love him as the character, but the pacing on those Netflix Marvel shows is all 
all wrong for me. It always has uh, been. They take what's six, seven episodes of material and just stretch it to 12. Yeah, I've experienced that same thing trying to watch maybe Luke Cage or some of those others where it's like somebody getting a fight because it's been two episodes and no one's even punched anyone. <laughs> you get really right. desperate for action. I think the best Punisher we've gotten ever in live action form is Burnthal in season two of Daredevil, which okay. I know I recommended to you. I know you've been busy. I don't know if you had time to check it out. Not yet. But the way the way that season handles the Punisher, maybe that's the key. Maybe it's just hard for him to carry a movie. By the time his family's all dead and he's the Punisher, he's not like a lot of fun to hang out with. No, he's tearing shit down. He doesn't have goals and challenges that he's overcoming. He's just wreaking revenge. And by the time we meet Bernthal, he's already the Punisher, but having him be the antagonist and he's on screen more sparingly, I think goes a long way to making every time he's on screen, you're like, you can't look away. Yeah. Uh, but then when he's the star of the show, it's like, well, how much is there really to this guy now? He's kind of a shell of a person. That's part of his appeal. Right. He's, he's an instrument, but you can't really make a captivating show about an instrument. That's the thing. I think that's the big thing with this movie. This version of the movie is the director went to extra length to really motivate him, to really say, well, I'm going to make this guy human. I'm going to give him- <laughs> Did I mean, he ever? <laughs> and he goes, it's too far. I cannot I wait. We're going to agree it's too it. far. But he's, oh yeah, I was studying Othello and I wanted this to be classical tragedy and I wanted you to really feel for this man. But he keeps him too safe. The Punisher should be a guy that you're like- okay, I get why he's fucked up in the head and he's doing this shit, but he's doing shit that I cannot excuse. Right. And, the, and this director said, no, I want you to be able to excuse it. I want to give you very clear justification why it's okay sometimes for Tom Jane to fucking kill some guys. And it's like, well, maybe it's not compelling to mull over that stuff as it is to be like, I'm enjoying watching this guy, but I'm also morally conflicted. And that's the fun of some of the better anti-hero type shows. Right. And there is a tendency with the Punisher in comics to like, eventually a writer will run out of material that they can do where like he's morally justified in the things right. he's doing. So then he starts like killing jaywalkers and then all of a sudden he's the villain in his own story again, because I think it, it has to go there eventually, you know? Yeah. Because it just, it stops being interesting after a while. First of all, he never has anything to lose when you murdered right. his entire family in issue one or the first act of the movie or whatever. So then what are the stakes? You know, he doesn't I care know. if he lives or dies. You end up giving those characters dogs, which I guess is the plot of John right. Wick, right? <laughs> or I am legend. Yeah, exactly. You're like, oh, this guy's lost everything. All right. He adopts a cat this episode or this movie. Or he adopts Ben Foster with 45 fucking facial piercings. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I can't wait to talk about Ben Foster in this. I was shocked. Like I didn't look up the cast before I sat down to watch this movie. I was like, fucking Ben Foster's in this thing. Cause he's <laughs> one of my favorite actors now. Uh, he, he's just given lights out performances. I know you've been talking about him for the past decade, but you're quoting him left and right on this show. And I'm like, Ben Foster, Ben Foster. I know that name. Cause John keeps talking about him, but I doubt it was this, this movie. This that your, like, <laughs> and then you're like, Oh, Ben Foster, this is going to be good. Let me, let me get my popcorn. You're like, what the <laughs> fuck was John talking about? No, just watch like Hell or High Water, Galveston, yes. even Alpha Dog he's very good in, which is a bad movie that he's good in. Okay. He's capable of being fantastic. And 310 to Yuma was another one I just that's watched. That's right. Really you just brought that on. Yeah, that's in. why he was back in the zone. But yeah, Hell or High Water, yeah. he was great in that. That was a very edgy and interesting character. That's one of my favorite movies of the past 10 years. I'm a sucker for a heist movie that has something to say. Did it ever. Chris Pine, underrated actor, I think. I like him too. And Jeff Bridges doing the late period Jeff Bridges thing where everyone has a silly voice. But he's still lovable, basically though. playing this guy from True Grit, right? It's yeah. the same character. <laughs> but it's charming. It works almost every time. It, it is charming. Except R.I.P.D. R.I.P.D. That's where he hit the limit. He hit the wall. But fortunately, he reined it back in for hell or high water. I still call R.I.P.D. I.R.P.D., which is short for <laughs> I'd rather get punched in the dick than watch this movie again. <laughs> All right. Do you want to walk us through the first leg of this movie? It's a doozy. I've got okay. a lot of notes. Here we go. 
Frank Castle, played by Thomas Jane, is an undercover FBI agent. During a sting operation led by Frank, the cops shoot and kill one of the suspects. The dead guy turns out to be the son of local Tampa crime boss Howard Saint, played by John Travolta, and Saint swears vengeance. With his operation complete, Frank retires and takes his entire extended family on a vacation to Puerto Rico. But a squad of Saint's hitmen show up at the Castle family reunion, slaughtering his wife, children, and parents, along with dozens of aunts, uncles, and cousins. They, they think they've killed Frank, too. <laughs> this is terrible. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. They think they've killed Frank, too, but a local fisherman finds his badly wounded body and secretly nurses him back to health. Oh, man. I cannot <laughs> wait to talk about Puerto Rico. First things first, I really dig the opening theme. It's good. It's very like spaghetti western, right? It's cool. It's, it's a, not on the soundtrack, which I, I'm annoyed by. Oh, really? I do my little soundtrack searching just on YouTube and you can get it there. Yeah, it's on YouTube, but it's not on the Spotify, which I, I was annoyed see. by because I used to, I definitely owned the soundtrack, which is just full of your favorite butt rock favorites from the early 2000s. Okay. But they could have thrown the intro song in there as a little taste of culture for the fans. It's a strong theme. It's a catchy theme and it's sort of iconic. Like you said, it really works to set the mood. And it does feel like a throwback, which Hensley was going for as we established. And the credits too, it's a cartoon bullet hole thing going on with yeah. lots of smoking guns and it works. Totally it works. It set a tone that the movie then deviates from immediately. <laughs> it gets back there eventually, I think. The very next image after this cool, stylish visual, this catchy retro theme, the very next thing you see is Eddie Jameson coming out of a bright yellow Corvette. And you're like, okay, now we're back in 94. And Eddie Jameson is shockingly bad in this movie. Do you agree? I didn't want to say he did a bad performance. Doesn't he always play that character and it's kind of annoying? And He does, but I feel like he's more so in this. Okay. He's good in the Oceans movies, but again, he's not a focal point of those movies. He pops up for a few scenes. He's okay. part of the crew, but he's used sparingly. Yeah. He had an arc on Justified, which- Oh, Justified Alert. For this week's segment of, did anyone from this movie guest star on Justified? <laughs> he sure did, as Stan Perkins. And he was a little more subdued in that. He's also doing this weird New York accent in this movie, which like, what's the fucking story there? We're on Tampa. Like, we just decided we're going to be in Tampa. All <laughs> yeah. right. Everyone made that decision. Let's stick with it. Did you not get the fucking memo? Give us the Tampa accent. Yeah. What's a Tampa accent? I don't know. I don't know either. To hear him try. Yeah. Have him play high in one scene or something. Just give us some. <laughs> let, let us know that he knows where he is in the world. But no, he's doing this weird New York accent that I really dislike. He has bad dialogue. Maybe that's part of it. You know, he's used to reading better written dialogue. I'm sure uh, that would have helped so him. He might not be one of the actors that's strong enough to elevate the material. He's kind of like, he can work with what you give him. We'll go down the line in this movie and see who we think elevated it and who didn't. And you, there might be some surprises. Well, Tom Jane definitely elevates it. I, he's not the problem with this movie no, in any no. sense, right? He's no, pretty that's good. not the surprise that I meant. But John Travolta maybe doesn't elevate. No, I think Travolta's pretty bad in this. He's also wildly miscast. So maybe that's part of it. Like you just don't buy him as this person. Was this a period of Travolta where this was all he could muster for a movie? Because I feel like there's been better Travoltas. But this is sort of a pretty cheap, flimsy Travolta that showed up for this film. I'm wondering when Swordfish came out. Swordfish was 2001. He's better in that, but it's a very similar character, even like a similar haircut, to be honest, which is weird. But <laughs> I can't believe I Googled the word Swordfish and it showed me the movie and not just a bunch of pictures of Swordfish. Google knows like, shit, man. Does, it knows you. Google knows everything. This is fucked up. Yeah, so you know what? Fuck it. Let's pull up his IMDb real quick because you bring up an interesting point. I'm I'm wondering the same thing. Like, where was he at this point in his career? Because he he's obviously prone to ups and downs. That's what it seems like. Even me, the the weak amateur film buff that I am, I feel like I've seen Travolta go through these arcs where it's like Travolta's a good actor. No, Travolta's a total B movie actor, and then bounce back and forth. Oh, we were in a valley. 
maybe the same valley we're still in, you know, like, oh man, he was putting out dog shit. So he had Battlefield Earth in 2000, okay. which may have been a turning point for him. Yeah. Because before that, he's doing stuff like The General's Daughter, which I remember being a decent movie. The Thin Red Line, he had a role. Primary Colors okay. was well received. And then after Battlefield Earth, he's doing Swordfish, which we actually have on the schedule. Domestic Disturbance, Basic, which we, we brought up. Then he does this. Be Cool, the terrible, terrible sequel to Get Shorty that, you know, it wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't also a sequel to Get Shorty. They needed a bunch of old dudes having one last ride movies like Wild Hog and Old Dogs. Oh boy. He did the taking of Pelham 123, which I don't think was bad. I think that was pretty good. That was a Tony Scott one. I remember liking that, but I haven't seen it in a while. And then he did Savages, which we'll have to cover soon to complete our Taylor Kitsch trilogy. Oh yeah. Yeah, like he's been down for a while. I think the O.J. Simpson miniseries was the last thing he did that got any decent reviews for his performance specifically, where he played Robert Shapiro. Yeah, that was a comeback. Oh, he did In the Valley of Violence, which was a Ty West movie. I don't think he had a big role in it. That's a pretty good movie. Ethan Hawke is the star. I checked that out. I feel like Westerns that are really stylish. But I don't want to say this was a down point in his career. I think this is just what his career is now. Battlefield Earth might have permanently fucked him. It may be that he needs really good stuff to line up around him to draw one of those good performances out of him, like a really good director. And this director did not distinguish himself that well with this. This was his uh, debut. It was his first directorial effort. So yeah, we cut him some slack for that. But we know Travolta can do good work. He just maybe was not the best at working with actors because, man, aside from Travolta and Jameson, the actors playing Frank's wife and son give two of the worst performances I can remember in a <laughs> major Hollywood release. Samantha Mathis playing Maria Castle. I don't know. They kind of just disappeared for me. I'm like the kids, you know, half the time. If it's not a prestige movie, you don't get a Dakota Fanning in your movie. Then 50-50, you'll get a kid that can't really act and just kind of a lump. But that's what this kid was. And I'm like, okay, we'll write him off. He's not going to live long anyway. Sorry to say. <laughs> right. No, it, it's true. Kid actors, that's why you see the same good ones pop up in everything because uh-huh. it's hard to find one that can really carry material. And again, the dialogue they wrote for this kid is hot dog shit. I don't <laughs> put the blame squarely on his shoulders, but true. it's really intense when he's describing the t-shirt. I went to the market. It wards off evil spirits. Sorry, <laughs> kid. Just like, Let's move along. But the, all right, so let's, we, we, we skipped ahead a lot in this section, but let's talk about this opening drug deal with Otto Krieg, which is Tom Jane with fucking blonde highlights in his hair My and God. like a cheap. Another, another thing that makes you think this is like the early 90s, the suit he's wearing. Does he have the lapel pulled out? Over the shirt? Does he, he have the shirt quite, pulled out over the it's, jacket? It's dangerously close to <laughs> popping out. But like the first thing that you see at the star of this movie is you hear his voice off screen doing this campy German accent. Why did you bring a person to my deal? I don't like this. And then the first thing you see of him are his toes stepping into frame. And he's wearing a linen suit and sandals. You're really not sure if you're supposed to burst out laughing. He's dressed for a night out on the town in Tampa. <laughs> yeah, it's a goofy <laughs> character. But like they're playing it serious. Yeah. Yes, the scene is set up with the gravest of tones. And of course, the drug deal goes wrong. The little saint kid gets killed. Which one was this? Was this Bobby? This was Bobby. It's the same actor, right? It's the same actor. I looked it up because I'm like, fucking A, if those two guys that played the brothers don't look alike. And the difference is, it's very hard to penetrate his disguise. But as Bobby, he has a very skinny pencil mustache and his hair is slicked back (laughs) tightly. And as John, his hair is aquanitted up high off his forehead. So they're totally different brothers, of course. Totally. And and I guess Bobby in that case is the one who's like capable, which is hilarious considering how the rest of this movie goes. Yeah, but it it seems, what what does John Travolta say at some point? he still had to dress him at this point in his life? His like 25-year-old son? 
Doesn't he make a comment like I had to pick his clothes out for him? Yeah, he makes some weird speech about his son. He makes it sound like he's six years old. His two large adult sons still live in his house, of course, which is weird because he just bangs his wife on the balcony later. (laughs) That's inappropriate. Yeah. It's like your son's bedroom is attached to the same balcony. (laughs) We'll get to just how inappropriate that little moment was. But this deal goes down. I think it's actually a gun smuggling deal, right? It's It's not drugs. It's a gun deal. Yeah. It's a gun deal. It's not drugs. And they're praising Frank Castle as a brilliant FBI agent who had this long (laughs) career. He decides he's going to go out by staging his own death during the arrest so that I guess he doesn't have to sneak out and have the- It heightens everything though. Yeah, now everybody's on edge and got their guns in their hands. They're fucking shooting guns. Like Like, you started the shooting. You orchestrated shooting to break out on your bust. And then you're like, oh, why did it go all crazy? Why were people shooting? Yeah, because you planned it that way. And then this poor kid, Bobby, he has it coming. He pulls his gun out and starts flashing it. And then- But he doesn't even- even try to shoot. He just decides to point at somebody with his Uzi. Right. Like a fucking idiot. He's kind of dumb. Of course, he gets shot. But then, <laughs> what is the production value of a fucking FBI gun bust? He has squibs hooked up. They've got fake coroners coming in and fake EMTs coding him at the scene. Yeah, He's exactly. It's what like kind of whole... fucking production is this? Did you have to call up Second City to fly in some people for your <laughs> little re- improv show? They rehearsed this on a soundstage for weeks. And then when the whole thing's done, he just gets in a chopper and flies away. Is he a rock star? What kind of money are you spending on transporting? This guy in and out of drug busts. I know you can't, he can't drive his own car home from the drug bust. Like it says at the beginning, Tampa, it's not like, oh, we're in Venezuela for this bus. He's a few miles away and he gets a chopper. He's like, see you boys. My chopper's here. Can't drive from the port to the suburbs. I got to fucking get my chopper here. Yeah. The whole thing is just very strange. And I don't know a lot about how the FBI operates, but this feels wildly inappropriate and irresponsible. It does. They definitely have to bear the blame for this. Especially because it's 2004. It's three years after 9-11. You think they're really spending their budget busting a bunch of Tampa mobsters? Like it's all going to the war on terror at that point. And two bit, like the whole point is that these guys were nobody, right? It's the boss's little runaround guy accidentally brings the boss's son into this two-bit little deal. And for Frank Castle, that's the pinnacle of his career. He's like, I just made the greatest bust ever. I busted two nobodies in Tampa and killed one of, <laughs> killed one of them while doing it. And they're like, throw him a giant retirement party. Congratulations, you're a hero. A retirement party. I think Tom Jane was like 39 at this point in his life. But he's retiring to go work a desk job is, is what they mean. Yeah, yeah. He's going to the London Bureau. Can't imagine the Punisher in London. No, that would have been a weird story if he just makes it there and he's just working little boring cases in London town. Oh, I mean, like if he was just the Punisher in London, that'd be weird. He'd pull out a gun and be like, ah, what's that? You know, like just a small handgun. I think we just hit each other with sticks here. So then what should we talk about next? Are we ready to go to Puerto Rico? I guess, right? So we get to Puerto Rico. Roy Scheider is his dad. Roy Scheider with seven minutes of screen time? I thought he was past this. It's like a little cameo bit. It adds some nice weight. You're like, oh, wait, this is serious. They're getting into the family story and they actually went through the trouble of casting a veteran like Roy Scheider to be Castle's dad. And it doesn't get time to do much before the shooting breaks out, but kind of fun to see Scheider. I guess he was Jonathan Hensley's neighbor. That's kind of how he got cast in this movie. He was like, hey, you want to come to Puerto Rico for a day? I don't even know if they're in Puerto Rico. They might just be in like a beach in Tampa. Yeah, they're just uh, further down the beach from the gun bust scene. He's like, you'll get to die in an interesting way. No one's ever shot a scene like this before. So let's talk about the massacre. So yeah. of course, we're back. We're back stateside. They find out that the Saint boy is dead. The Saint family finds out and Livia Saint wants Castle dead. Of course, everyone's like, sure, that makes sense. But then she says his whole family. Do you think when she said that she knew that they were having an actual 
Oh no, yeah, because Quentin Glass tells them they're having a family reunion in Puerto right. Rico. He's he's got the week before he leaves for London. And she goes, his whole family. Do you think she knew how many of them were there though? She probably wouldn't have guessed. There's uh, probably like 110 castles there's on so this many. fucking beach in Puerto Rico. <laughs> All wearing Hawaiian shirts and just milling about in cabanas and gazebos. They brought their neighbors. Frank's niece's boyfriend is there. Literally generations of castles are there. Yeah. And we see them all relaxed and having fun. And then there's just like, how many guys? It's 10 guys probably, right? It's something like that. There's a crew of them and they're all wearing matching black outfits. They march it's across. Like a, it's like a black corduroy t-shirt or something and black li- Yeah, it's a very sweaty outfit for yeah. Puerto Rico. All these very henchy henchmen, they just walk into this party and it's a brutal massacre. But it's so ridiculous that it's hard to take seriously. It is incredibly silly how many people get shot in this scene. It's like a Tim and Eric bit. First of all, the mom's walking out carrying like a tray of margaritas or something. And you just hear a gunshot. And then you cut to Castle just being like, Mom? And then machine gun fire. They are shooting everybody. They shoot a guy who's just paddle boarding, I think. I don't even think he's part of the family reunion. He was just there on vacation. Did they get this whole island? Do they have their own private island? They got a pretty big villa down there. Although it's not a villa. It's a bunch of little cabins on the beach. Yeah, Yeah. little bungalows. But his dad has his arsenal down there. I don't know what the gun laws are in Puerto Rico, but his dad was just able to retire in the States, move to Puerto Rico, and bring his entire fucking armory with him. And was Frank Castle raised in Puerto Rico? He says, I can't believe I'm home. There's some allusions to that idea that they spent a lot of time there at least because they know the old fisherman who lives out on the freaky island that only Frank visits. And they set up all this kind of lore about the Castle family and this part of Puerto Rico, but n- none of it really pays off except that the fisherman saves him. But like fisherman says six words in the whole movie, so it doesn't add to the story. This would have been legitimately the biggest news story of all time if it ever happened yeah. in real life. They killed like a hundred white people. Yeah. Even Roanoke didn't kill that many white people. This is absurd that it just comes and goes with nary a reference to what's going on in the States when the news hits about all this. We skip ahead immediately after he's dead to five and a half. I'm not done talking about this fucking scene yet. So they shoot everyone. They're like shooting under houses. They're right. shooting people on motorcycles running away. We got we got the paddle boarding guy. I think they get a ferry boat driver at one point. And then what's Frank's son's name? Is he Will? Frank's son might be Will, yeah. They make a run for it and decide to run off a pier to try to get to their grandfather's boat. Not the worst idea. They're on an island. They might be able to get away there. But like the henchmen are just, in, so they, they park their car as to block entrance to the pier so they can run up the pier. And instead of the henchmen getting out of the car and chasing the injured woman and small child, they just ram their Jeep into this other Jeep like 15 fucking times. <laughs> There's some weird so choices. There's some weird choices. They, I, I went back and I watched that chase scene again. So that chase scene starts with her getting this truck and it's got a little skiff hooked up on the trailer behind it. That part is actually, that felt fresh to me, seeing a chase scene on an island on these sandy dirt roads with this woman driving like hell and this crazy aluminum boat flopping around behind her. That kind of was fun. I'm like, oh, this is neat. There's this choke point where, yes, the truck flips over and she and the kid crawl out. And then the the henchmen spend a lot of time just butting their heads against this truck (laughs) instead of going after her, which is, I guess- They're both limping. Yeah. (laughs) You could just jog briskly and catch up to them in 10 seconds if you got out of the truck right Yeah, because she gets out of the truck and she doesn't start running up the pier. She goes- 
goes to the boarded up building next to the foot of the pier and pounds on the boards for 30 seconds. Like they could have just shot her from there. She was like 20 feet away from them. But still they're like backing up the truck and ramming it and ramming it. I think they're trying to build up dread, but the problem is they miscalculated what people's reaction to the massacre scene were going to be. They thought people would be like, oh my God, this is so heartbreaking, but they went way too far with it and it just ended up being silly. So there's not a lot of tension here. It's like, what are the odds his wife and child are going to make it out now after you've shot 400 of his fucking relatives? You know, like we know where this ends. It's pretty brutal when we go back and think about it now. I try to think about the funny parts of it where at one point, Frank is leaning out the window with his dad. They've got their two shotguns loaded and they're trying to fight back. And one guy jumps behind the barbecue and Frank shoots the propane tank. Was that a Jaws illusion? I just realized that. Oh. He shoots the propane tank. It kind of is. Although it wasn't Roy that shot the tank. I think it was, I think it was Tom. Oh, that's a missed opportunity then. It was a real missed opportunity. Yeah, he could have climbed up on the mast and did away with a guy. But but no, a small man in a black t-shirt jumps behind this barbecue. Tom Jane blows up the barbecue. You say small man. Do you you mean like a little person or (laughs) just just like like a a, a regular, like a normal guy who's just smaller than average? It wasn't one of the bigger henchmen. An average looking sized guy jumps behind. The barbecue blows up and then fucking Michael Myers dies in the explosion for some reason. A huge (laughs) dude in a jumpsuit with a Captain Kirk mask comes stumbling out of the flames and falls over. Kind not the best stunt work. Yeah, wasn't, the, wasn't the top stunt in the movie. So that's not the Ashley Schaefer henchman, right? No, that guy was qualified as a large henchman. And he plays a role in the rest of the movie, so he couldn't have blown up there. Yeah, he's uh, If you guys don't end. know who I mean, shit, I'm going to be putting a lot of episode notes in here. Yeah. I'll put a side by side of Ashley Schaefer, which is the character Will Ferrell plays in Eastbound and Down, who was heavily based on Ric Flair, I believe, next to a henchman in this movie that just every time he popped up reminded me of him. <laughs> and finally, they run down the son and wife, which to your point, this all is very brutal in theory. It's just an execution. It comes across very silly. Like yeah. it's not, it's not treated with the gravity it deserves. No. Uh, or maybe they tried to. I don't think it was like a choice by the filmmakers to make it funny. <laughs> you can't. The shooting is so horrible. If you actually think about it, you would just like turn off the movie or walk out of the theater. If they made it realistic there, they go a little more realistic with the wife and kid dying. And there's a pretty gut-wrenching moment that I think Tom Jane plays affectingly when he's sprinting out and sees their bodies and loses it. And it's tough. But then as soon as that happens, the henchmen come back and the guy, John Saint, the surviving- The mustachioed son. The, the non-mustachioed one, right? So mustache, oh, mustache yeah. is dead. The non-mustache guy, he's so distracting. Every time he's on screen, he looks like a chachi from an 80s thing. He's just like the goofiest, stereotypical- the like, dumbest fucking sunglasses I've ever seen. Dumb sunglasses. They're like little, little goggles almost. He's like a bully from an 80s teen TV show and he just keeps mugging up the screen. So like, I guess if you're worried- he does a lame little karate kick to Frank's face. <laughs> like he's he's a very silly character that I don't think was intended to be that silly. No, but it helps if you're worried about this movie being too intense with all the gun violence. At least this guy hams it up and breaks the spell. He's not the only one. No. A lot of people hamming stuff up in this movie. None more so than Will Patton, which we got to shout out Will Patton just slumming it in this movie. Like he's much better than this. He is, but I thought he was one of the people. He and maybe Rebecca Romaine pulled it off. They made these goofy parts yeah. work because they they played them real. And yeah, Will Patton plays Quentin, the right-hand man to John Travolta's Howard Saint. And so he has to do some of the goofiest, corniest right-hand guy to a mob boss stuff. But I'm like, oh, I can believe it. 
because he's a really good actor and and he makes it fly. Yeah. Shaw cannot see him in a cowboy hat in this movie because he's decided <laughs> he will only play parts where he can wear a little hat. He's been in Yellowstone <laughs> and Outer Range. I don't even know that was possible. No. I thought they were the same show. Just one had supernatural elements. He jumped through a hole from one show to the other. Yeah, jumped through a hole <laughs> in the floor. And then he's in all the new Halloween movies wearing a fucking little state trooper hat. So like oh. he, he's a hat guy now. Does he wear Back a hat in Minari? I, f- I forgot. He's really good in Minari, too. I think he does wear a little, like a straw hat. You might be right. <laughs> he plays the goofy neighbor, for anyone who didn't remember yeah. that one. He's a, he's a really good actor. He is, and you're right. He puts in a good effort here, and he, he mostly lands it. His character is problematic because of the sexual politics involved there. Right. The only gay character in our Marvel movie until 2018 is, you know, a vicious sadist. But, you know, at least they tried something, I guess, some representation. <laughs> yeah. Should we jump into the second act of the movie where he gets to do his thing? We didn't even talk about Frank getting killed. They oh. kill him like 15 times. Oh, yeah, we should mention that. They get their revenge. They think they do. They beat him up. They shoot him. They blow him up. What else? Did they drop a piano on him at some point? Yeah, Um, like a tropical beach piano. They (laughs) shoot like fireworks at him. They kill him a bunch. And then another Mike Myers dummy flies off the pier into the water (laughs) when they blow him up. And then he's nursed back to health. And uh, the fisherman tells him, go with God. And what does he say in typical 80s action movie fashion? God's going to sit this one out. Oh, that was a really chewy action hero one-liner. But there's thankfully, there's the not movie, too many of those. No, and, and I think the ones they do have aren't bad. The cheesy one-liners mostly landed for me throughout the movie. Yeah. mileage may vary based on how much you love cheesy action movie one-liners, but I'm a fan. As long as you don't overdo it. And they didn't. There's no. like maybe three or four good ones in this movie. Yeah, it's not All too right, bad. so let me, let me go through the, the middle of the movie okay. where Frank gets up to some high jinks. So Frank returns to Tampa and sets up shop in a rundown apartment building alongside three colorful neighbors. He studies Howard Saint's money laundering operation and then alerts Saint that he's back from the dead and out for revenge. Frank starts by disrupting Saint's large shipments of illicit cash. He also hatches a complex plot to destroy the trust between Saint, his wife Livia, and his right-hand man, Quentin Glass. Saint hires a hitman named Harry Heck, who serenades Frank with a country song he wrote. I'd say it's more folk. I don't know if it's country (laughs) or Heartland Rock. You know, it's got more Tom Petty vibes to me than country. Okay. Then tries to kill him, but Heck fails, so Saint hires the Russian, a comically oversized brute. But Frank narrowly defeats him too. After the long, painful battle, Frank lies injured and helpless, but his kind-hearted neighbors stick their necks out for their new friend and prevent him from being captured by Saint's henchmen. It's a meaty section. A lot happens in this section. Uh, I want to talk about Howard Saint's nightclub for a minute. Saints and Sinners, it's called, in downtown Tampa. It it seems like a fine nightclub to have a cocktail at. Howard's just lighting a pipe up in the middle of it, which I thought was an odd choice. But also... He tells his son, like, go dance with your mom. And then in this crowded Tampa nightclub, they just play the fucking cheesiest piano ballad I've ever heard. That, was a that weird is not choice. nightclub music. No, <laughs> no not it's like Florida nightclub. It's very white decor. You expect the bass to be bumping. And then right. there's this lady crooning this indie ballad. And I'm like, oh, man, that's somebody's cousin. Right. How did this artist get in this movie singing this song all of a sudden? That's oh, totally I looked it up. That is Martina Hensley. I don't know if she's related to. Oh, no, I'm kidding. I just common, made that up. Common last name. <laughs> common last name. Yeah, very strange choice to have that happen there. And then we get the famous, in terms of our podcast episode that we're recording right now, balcony scene where Howard gifts her these huge Harry Winston diamond earrings that will factor into the story heavily that she apparently just decides to keep in in her handbag forever. She doesn't wear them or 
do anything with them, put them in a jewelry box, anywhere remotely safe. They just stay in her car for the rest of the movie. I'm yeah, like, <laughs> in her purse, in their original box. She puts one of them on right there before giving it up to Howard. But she obviously took it right back off, put it in the box and said, I'm going to put these in my purse in case I pop by Harry Winston's, maybe exchange them for something nicer. And uh, she never does. Spoiler no. alert. They're Chekhov's earrings. They come back into the movie later. <laughs> a few <laughs> times, though. That's why they got to keep reminding us they're still in this handbag. Uh, she hasn't taken them out yet. Same box. Laura Haring, uh, what'd you think of her? Herring? Haring? I don't know how to pronounce it. She's, um, what'd you think of her performance in this movie? You know, she has a lot of sort of straight ahead lines. Her kill the whole family was like a little overdramatic, but it needed to be. And then she's very serviceable the rest of the way, I thought. I thought she was good at the end when she's like panicked trying to explain to Howard that he's been played. But before that, when she's in charge, I feel like she's a little sleepy. Okay. She needs like some drama to, to rev her up. Speaking of revving her up, she's super horny for somebody who's mourning her son very recently deceased. That is a weird, uncomfortable moment where she, she literally connects giving her husband sex with the death of her son. She's like, I asked you to take vengeance for our son and you did it. And then she drops her fucking nightgown. And I'm like, whoa, that's how their relationship works. It's like sex for vengeance scheme. It's kind of uncomfortable. Do they ever have like normal sex or is it only, hey man, you killed a bunch of people because I asked you to get that wiener out. You're getting lucky tonight. <laughs> Here's your reward. Or do they ever just, oh, it's Tuesday, you know, like we got nothing going on. Let's fool around a little bit. I don't know. It adds another, like there, there's some weird sex stuff going on in the same family. <laughs> yeah. Like also then later, you got to remind me which one's alive of the two. I think John is alive, but I, I may have swapped it the whole time. So we may be <laughs> perpetuating a falsehood. We'll file that under who gives a fuck. But <laughs> yeah, like he, he's got some very scantily clad woman in his room while he's just having a conversation with his dad. I don't know. You guys need boundaries. Yeah. No, some they're kind of a fucked up family. family. Yeah. But they also don't lean into it enough to be like, wow, they're really fucked up. You're just like, that's kind of weird. You know? Crime families. They're all just kind of weird. Yeah, that's true. All right. It's time to get into the conversation about the fucking castle apartment building castle estates he moves into this little rundown place and he's got neighbors he's got neighbors like spacker dave played by ben foster spacker dave is a pierced man he has many facial piercings he plays video games and has weird uncomfortable dialogue with the video games as he's playing them yeah uh that scene <laughs> just made me want to if i was a turtle i would have crawled inside my shell and hidden away from the rest of the movie because again ben foster one of my five favorite actors but is so bad that i was embarrassed for him his lines are bad i had i guess the advantage of not connecting him with ben foster on the first watch and so on the second watch i took a closer look what's happening here? How did this guy who we know can act really well take this role and make us feel all this secondhand embarrassment? The role is really bad, but there are moments where like he's a little bit better than the role. He's not undermining it because he has to play those lines and those emotional beats that they wrote, which are awful mostly. But you yes. can tell, you can see the life in his eyes underneath if you look closely. That, that's my takeaway. I felt like that sort of salvaged Ben Foster for me. That's fair. I think you're right. I think there are a few moments where he transcends the material. And again, he was only a couple years from giving some truly, truly great performances. He was really good in Six Feet Under. 310 to Yuma was 2007. That's only three years later. And 30 Days of Night was also 2007. He's quite good in that. So yeah, he already had his chops. He just needed the material to be able to show them off. Sadly, I hate to besmirch the dead, but John Panette as Bumpo, not transcending the material. He's pretty bad. Not a dramatic actor at all. Or a comedic actor, to be honest. For a guy who's, you know, a comedian, like 
Comedy acting is different from doing comedy, though. It's a tough part, man. I, I it's tough. The fucking bumpo. I know it's <laughs> like, so. Rudely, is he a clown? The, the neighbors are too clownish. Like, why not let him be a little bit real? Because they go through some real fear. Like, they have real concerns. This strange guy who they think is maybe cool, but maybe some kind of creepy killer has moved in next to them. So they have fears. He happens they have, to be both, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> they have real emotions. They both kind of cool and a creepy killer. And if you let those people be like real characters or real people and play the real emotions that they would experience, you could still get some humor in because they're not centered in the stakes of the story. So they could still give you those little lighter moments. But this is just like, we're just going comic relief. We're putting a comedy duo together. The guys are doing Pratt Falls out of their apartment door as they're trying to spy on Frank. And it's just too corny. This is a area where they were too loyal to the source material. All these neighbor characters are lifted directly from a Garth Ennis comic, the same one that Harry Heck and the Russian are from. So this section in particular is very based on a, on a particular comic book arc. But when the opening section and the closing section are not, you get some wild tonal clash. Yeah, you do. It's really interesting. That, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah. You see this over and over. So much of our cinema these days has been translated from comic book first and things have to be simplified. Comics have things in common with ancient forms of entertainment, like Greek stage plays, where you create these overly simplified archetypes because you only have a few panels to introduce them and the reader has to get it. You freeze one little facial expression, whereas like as soon as you put a person whose eyes are alive on the screen and they try to play the same part that was written in a comic book, it becomes obvious like how thin and how cliched those things feel in real life. So I feel like to translate to movies, you should be scaling up the sophistication just enough, even if you wanted to have still some of that comic flavor. But then when you put these crude moments that work in a comic book and it can actually seem totally cool and not corny in a comic book. They seem super corny on screen. Yeah. And a, a perfect example of that is the icicle torture scene when Frank tortures Mickey, who's the Eddie Jameson character, because that's like a, a pretty well-regarded scene from the comics. It's considered like an iconic passage, but it just doesn't work on screen because, you know, the realities are different. Yeah. You need, and you need to, like you said, adjust for your medium. You can't like, for as much as people want comic book adaptations to be faithful to the comics, it can never be a one-to-one -one thing. It just doesn't work. They're different mediums. They require different things. My little example, my note that I made in this section, which I can also see like how it translates from the comic, is I can picture what it looks like when Frank Castle is leaning around the body of Mickey as he's hanging from the ceiling and he's got his blowtorch going and he's got his welder goggles on. And it makes for a very stark comic book panel that looks, you can feel the intimidation. But here in the movie, somehow when they shot the scene, one of Tom Jane's goggles is slightly crooked. So for this whole scene where he's supposed to be intimidating and it's terrifying until you find out that he's tricking Mickey, he looks goofy and you're like, that looks dumb. The strap of the goggle is going over his ear and his one eye looks crooked. And it just shows how real life intrudes and undermines the sort of iconography that works as a symbol in the comic. Well said. And also the Mickey character is just strange to me in the sense that like, why does he get a pass? Just because Frank needs him, he's also a piece of shit. You know, he's a gun running criminal, just like the Saints are. He works for them. That's always been a part, even in the comic book, that struck me as a little inconsistent characterization for Frank. Like, why aren't you punishing this guy? He adheres to his ideals so strictly in the comic book that it never lined up for me. Their whole relationship is weird because Mickey is also way too chill for a guy who was just 
made to believe his body was being burned to a crisp. His whole attitude the rest of the scene is like, that was kind of funny what you just did to me. And by the way, I hate the Saints, so I'm on board with you, whatever you want to do. Yeah, it's just a badly written character. <laughs> so then this is where Frank starts planting the seeds for the Livia and Quentin betrayal storyline, which we'll get into in more depth, I think, in the third section. But it's worth noting here that Livia goes to the gym once a week. Am I to understand this? <laughs> you're not, you're not going to build up any kind of cardiovascular resistance that way or, or muscle no. building no, once that's... a week. Get the fuck out of here. Don't try to pull this stuff on John. Filmmakers, be on alert. Don't throw some bullshit workout stuff at John. He will take you down. And at the but, risk of sounding horny, I guess, Laura Haring, she goes to the gym more than once a week. She's pretty hot in this movie. She so looks great. Um, don't pull the wool over my eyes, Jonathan Hensley. No, that Thursday. But wait, she goes to the gym, but then she goes to the movies, right? So that's what this whole thing is based on. Her Thursdays right, are it, like it fully of, spoken for. It gives the impression that it's like the only time she's allowed out of the house by herself, you know? Right. It seems like she's very much almost a captive in the Saint household because every time Howard's like, where's my wife? And I was like, oh, it's Thursday. And he's like, oh, right. But yeah. like any other day, he could just demand her presence at whatever time and she'd be around. Yeah. Half this movie is like a crime thriller with big shootouts. And then half of it is this psychological thriller where the Punisher is fucking taking down this family because he studied her patterns. And this setup is so elaborate. It's too elaborate. It's way too detailed with the fucking fire hydrant in a bag. Like this is some <laughs> stuff Bugs Bunny would have done to Elmer Fudd. Hold on. <laughs> you got to explain that. Why does the Punisher have a fire hydrant in a bag. So while Livia is at the movies, she parks her car on the street. The Punisher needs her car. So he goes, steals it, but puts a fire hydrant where her car was so that no one will take her spot. And then he drives <laughs> it to the Wyndham Hotel where he has told Quentin to be because he has photos of him kissing a guy. Which right. is a big no-no in the mob, as Sopranos taught us two years later with Johnny Cakes. So Quentin's at the Wyndham Hotel, supposed to meet somebody there who's blackmailing him for these photos. He think he's supposed to bring five grand or whatever. So then Frank drives Livia's car to the Wyndham Hotel, but parks it where you're not allowed to park, gets a parking ticket, takes the parking ticket for himself, drives back to the other spot and <laughs> parks the car where the fire hydrant was, packs up the fire hydrant in a bag. I guess he needed a paper trail of Livia being being at the Wyndham Hotel because, but then the only way Howard finds out, all right, now we're getting into third act stuff, but Mickey is like, I saw Quentin at the Wyndham Hotel. And that's the only way Howard ever finds out that Quentin was even there, right? So why'd you have to have Quentin go there at all? It's, it's you could have just really... told Mickey to tell Howard that you saw him there. I guess maybe he was scared like Quentin would just come hang out with Howard during the time he was supposed to be with Livia. Oh yeah, it's you, a had little... to, you had to get him out of the house. So he also goes, why was Quentin out of the house on Thursday? Quentin doesn't live with them. He's got his own house. It might be on oh, the property. Yeah. I don't know. He's like, why didn't you pick up the phone? And he makes up an excuse. I fell asleep. I took a nap. But yeah, it's a really involved plot. It's enough plot for a whole movie that's about a revenge setup where a man tricks another man into killing his wife and his best friend. But it's only the secondary plot of this movie. So it's a lot. And I think your Bugs Bunny comparison is very apt. They lower this character who's supposed to be the badass Punisher and they make him carry fucking fire hydrants and duffel bags. And the only reason, as you explained correctly, the only reason is for this little thing. He needs the parking space to be there when he gets back so that she doesn't realize that the car got moved. And it's like, man, that's a weird thing to put in for this little detail of this huge scheme that he's pulling off. Like, I don't know. Let him put a little sawhorse there or something, you know, like a street work sign. The fire hydrant in the bag is just so goofy. 
I just picture like a meter maid that's usually works that street being like, where did this fucking fire hydrant come from? <laughs> and then comes back and there's just like a whole investigation going on about why is there a fake fire hydrant here now? You know, it's it feels like a section that was added. There probably was something really cool here. Or maybe I'm giving Jonathan Hensley too much credit. But and then they were like, well, you only have 30 million dollars. You have half the money you thought you had. So come up with something else that doesn't cost a lot of money. And he was like, hijinks with a fire hydrant, I guess. Like, <laughs> if you believe what you read on the Wikipedia page, he was really into this. He was excited about this revenge trickery subplot. He's like, dude, I've fucking, I have adapted Othello into my movie and it's fucking Shakespearean. <laughs> Nobody needs you to have Othello in your fucking Punisher movie. <laughs> but Congratulations for doing it, but no one asked you to do that. He wedged it in there for better or worse. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's talk about Harry Heck. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I like him and uh -huh. I like this whole scene. I think it's cheesy and comic booky, but in a way that works, mostly because Castle's reaction to him is very grounded. Like, what the fuck is your deal? You know, like he's a weird little character, but I, I don't know. I, I don't mind him. He's fun. The The actor is good. The actor is an actual singer, musician. Mark, um, Mark Colley, right? Yeah. Yeah. I found that it stretched believability, but like you said, in that comic book way where you're like, okay, this is the section of the film where the big bad guy hires a sequence of different crazy assassins and then each one has their funny quirk and we get to meet them and we get to see if Frank can get the better of them. And this one is pretty funny. He walks into this diner and Frank's like, who's this guy? He's got his hand on his gun already as he's reaching for his guitar case because obviously you don't let a guy pull out a machine gun from a guitar case. Yeah, we all saw Desperado. That's a little telegraphed, but then he... He just fucking looks him dead in the eyes, doesn't break eye contact for three full minutes while he fucking sings him a song. And then he goes, I wrote that song for you. I'm going to sing it at your funeral. Yes. It's a great line. It's a great line. <laughs> but why did he let him taunt him like that and walk away? At that point, it's clear that this wasn't a strolling musician off the street who was looking to make a tip. This is the guy who's trying to kill you. So why let him walk out of the diner? If I was Frank, I would have killed him just for that eye contact because that was highly inappropriate and uncomfortable. But he <laughs> lets him walk away and then he deals with them on the street later. He hasn't really started killing people yet, right? Frank, has he killed anyone yet since he's been back? I don't know. He's, yeah, I don't he's think so. thrown a lot of money around. He's blown up a cigarette boat. He might not know that like Saints after him to that degree. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. Why did he let him leave? Maybe he just liked the song too. It's a good, I'm not a country fan. It's a pretty good song. He had your reaction. Um, he's like, you know what? I was going to kill this guy, but the fucking song was pretty good. So let's, uh, I have a let's let him I have go. a very embarrassing confession to make about this scene. You know, like it's a stereotype. People get drunk, smoke cigarettes when they don't normally smoke cigarettes. Uh -huh. I've been known to do that. I was underage when this movie came out. I couldn't drink legally. So I'd be drinking. I'd be feeling pretty cool because I'm at a bar and I'm not supposed to be. Uh -huh. And then like, we'd go out back and someone would light up a cigarette. And Mark Colley does a thing in this scene that is very small, but always stuck with me. Uh -huh. Where he, he takes his cigarette out of his mouth, but instead of doing it between his middle and his pointer finger... He does it between his pinky and his ring finger. Oh, you know, imagine that. Like yeah, yeah, that move. Would, so I started doing that when I would be drunk, uh, smoking <laughs> cigarettes. That. And I'm sure I missed a bunch of times because it feels unnatural. You know, there's yeah. a reason you do it between your pointer and your middle finger. I'm sure yeah. I fumbled it a couple times, but I thought I was the coolest shit. Yeah, <laughs> that's my embarrassing story. Inspired by Harry Heck as played by Mark Holland. I love that. So as he's leaving the diner, I guess he gets rammed by the car. Is it right after or is it later that day? Is it another day? They don't explain it. Timeline here. It's the yeah. next scene, but they don't say whether it's right away. He gets rammed. So he rolls his car and this fucking magical switchblade that Frank has. So he unfolds his switchblade and he's holding a knife in his hand. And Harry Heck says, You're one dumb son of a bitch. 
bringing a knife to a gunfight. And then Frank presses a button on the switchblade that launches the blade off the handle at a velocity that probably <laughs> broke the fucking speed of sound right into Harry's neck. What kind of fucking switchblade is this? You would need like a bunch of compressed air to launch it off the handle with this much velocity. There's no like spring mechanism that would be that forceful. That would be quite a spring and to keep that spring bunched up in your pocket at all times. And you're right, there was no puff of smoke or anything. So it didn't seem like it was shot out of there with a charge. He just flicked it at him, went right through his neck and that was the end of heck. Yeah, sad as heck. We didn't get any more songs out of him. And then he takes his car and then that's his car. That becomes like the Punisher's signature car. That's right. He's driving around in the fucking green, what is it, like a Chevelle? Or yeah, I think his car was a Chevelle. There's something but it's cool. a pretty cool car. Yeah, they both had cool cars, yeah. but he had to trade for Harry Heck's car because Harry fucked his up. Right after that, it's the Friendsgiving scene, right? Yeah, the two novelty assassins are like back to back. You're like, you just did a novelty assassin. Well, it's a comic book movie. We're doing another one. This is how it goes in the comic book, but it's strange that the movie is being so slavish to the comic book now but in no other part of the movie. It's like, we're going to give you guys a third of this movie to satisfy your little nerd <laughs> cravings and the rest of it's going to be completely made up. So he eats a meal. I was very curious what iced Florentine even is. Yes. You answered my question. Apparently it's rolling ice cream and cornflakes. Well, did you spot that? So they have this Friendsgiving. The friendly neighbors trick him into coming over and they're like, surprise, we wanted to have dinner with you. So three of them have worked together to cook this meal. And then they're like, it's not over. There's still dessert. It's my famous ice Florentine. And then they go in the kitchen and he's scooping ice cream while he's singing opera to Rebecca Romaine. This is Bumpo. Is his name Bumpo? Bumpo, like a fucking clown name. That's a clown name. <laughs> so they're yakking it up, just making ice Florentine, whatever that is, it appears to involve scooping ice cream out of a tub. And then Rebecca Romaine's got like a bag of cornflakes. And then in the next shot, she's rolling balls of it in her hand. She's rolled the ice cream in the cornflakes and she's making ice cream balls. I don't know. You look up ice Florentine and nothing came up when I Googled it. I got some kind of Florentine veal cutlets. I see <laughs> almond Florentine, Florentine and brown butter ice cream sandwiches. A Florentine seems like a little cookie. Oh, oh yeah. It's one of those wafer cookies that's like round with a little yeah. spines to it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've had those like from Italian bakeries at holidays and shit, but what the fuck does that have to do with the ice cream? I don't um, know. Weird that they also, invent- You're bringing this man, by now they know about his family, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. By now they know about his family. Yeah. They did some research. They hacked the internet. So it's pretty fucked up to lure him into your apartment with this conceit that like our lives are in danger. This guy's clearly got PTSD. He's probably suicidal and you're like, oh, come over and have dinner with us. And you basically trick him into it. I don't know, man. Like that's crossing a line in my opinion. They get him to come in by telling him the scary, violent ex-boyfriend of Rebecca Romaine is in her apartment. Like he might've thrown a grenade through the door before coming in. That would have yeah. put a damper on their nice dinner. Blowing up all their, what were they even eating? Was it like spaghetti? Bumpo's always making spaghetti. Thankfully, he's always got a pot of spaghetti on the boil because uh, that saves a life later on, just moments later. So if you are somebody that was a big fan of this comic book, the Russian fight is kind of a letdown, which sucks because on its own, it's a pretty fun fight. It's very violent, but in a comic booky way where you're not sure like if there's any real stakes here. In the comic, the Russian says a lot of very silly things while they're fighting. Like he's a big superhero fan. He runs the Daredevil fan club in Uzbekistan. Oh, wow. And he's like a very quirky little character that they came up with that has like a lot of interesting flourishes. But I guess Kevin Nash couldn't do the accent. So <laughs> Kevin Nash, the famous WWF wrestler known as Diesel, okay. later with the, the Outsiders and, and, and the NWO and WCW, who's a decent actor. Typically, he played, I, I sent you the clip, he plays Big Hank in Detroiters, which 
which is one of my favorite shows ever. He played Tim yeah. Robinson's dad in an episode. I mean, he's been acting and stuff. He's been, he was in Grandma's Boy. He's got like small roles in a bunch of things. But yeah, I guess a, a Russian accent was beyond his abilities. So they had to basically mute the character and just make him grunt, which takes away a lot of the fun personality he had in the comics. He could have said something like they make him one of those mutes, which I guess the model is Jaws from the old James Bond movie. I forget which one that was where a guy like doesn't say anything. He just sort of smiles when you hit him. Right. That's what they go for here. And interestingly, in, in the shot when uh, Frank stabs him with a butterfly knife, he took off Joan's ex-boyfriend. They did not sw- switch out the props. He fucking stabbed Kevin Nash oh, in the shit. shoulder and he just went with it. He did not flinch. I guess that, if you're not. the scene, I think that made it on camera. That's what oh, it might have been the, the cut. Really? Because that looks like a knife that goes down to the hilt like that should have killed him. That's uh, <laughs> that's really scary if that was real. I think it gets him more like in the shoulder than the chest. Yeah, I mean, not into his heart, but you don't want four inches of knife anywhere in your body around that area. But I guess but- they were supposed to trade it out for, you know, the stunt knives that reject into themselves. Right. But it just ended up being a blunt butterfly knife that Jane hit him with enough force that it went in. Yikes. You know, those old school wrestlers are tough. They, they take a lot of pain in their daily work. So as you were mentioning, luckily Bumpo's got his pot of spaghetti going. But this fight has some cool moments. Frank's rigged up his apartment to be something of a death trap, but the Russian is immune to all of them. I did like that he had a little switch to close the bathroom door. So he throws a grenade <laughs> through the door and quickly closes it. And the Russian just like swings a pipe. Yeah, and, that was wacky. Was it, right it a hammer? I don't the... remember what he, sw- he bats it right back through the window. Yeah. It's a little unrealistic that the neighbors then don't realize it's happening. Like they feel the apartment shake and stop dancing like yeah. idiots for a second, but then they pick it up. Right All they away. do is, yeah, they put the needle back on the record and start dancing again. That's how campy the comedy is in that scene, which to me was like too much. They went too hard on yeah. how silly the neighbors were being while Frank was being pummeled. And like you said, Frank is being pummeled in a cartoon way, too, because you, you kind of can't survive a guy closing a refrigerator door on your head over and over. Right. That was pretty brutal. We didn't really have any notes about it, but we should talk about the Ben Foster torture scene because that is not played for laughs. That's played pretty straight after yes. the Punisher manages to burn the Russian's face with the spaghetti water and pushes him <laughs> down a flight of stairs where he breaks his neck. He has a secret hiding place in his apartment. But then Quentin and the boys come in and rip all the piercings out of Ben Foster's face, which is not pleasant to watch because you literally see them pulling, pulling them out for the first couple. It's tough, but it's also funny to me because it was overplayed. Like they go, certainly having your piercings ripped out is like horrifying to everybody because they can imagine it, right? It's like something that could happen to you. And it's something that does happen to people with any kind of piercings, even the most plain vanilla earrings sometimes get caught on stuff. But like they sell it like, I'm going to teach you the definition of pain. There are much scarier things. He was rock hard, by the way, during the scene. (laughs) You just knew it. He was. It's like one of those torture scenes. but like Sexually charged. Like he could have grabbed any knife and done something much more damaging and horrifying to a person than just yank a little tiny ring out of their lip, right? And like, it's a horrible thing to happen to you, but it's not the definition of pain to the point where he's, I pulled four lip rings out of him. He must be telling the truth because nobody can endure that and lie. But let me just say that's not the go-to torture method when people want other people to really suffer. There's any number of inhuman things he could have done to him that it would have been way worse. It's not exactly bamboo shoots under the fingernails or anything. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The lips are tough. Like the eyebrow, you could probably maintain your composure a little bit. Yeah, he yanks it quick. You're like, get it over with. All right, that hurt, but I'm not. I said, no, he doesn't yank it quick. That might make it worse because he's like (laughs) pulling it slow. Either way, pretty grisly scene. Um, Yeah. 
And that's the last we hear of the neighbors. Just kidding. No, they're, they're sticking around. Like Ben's pain is real. So like he sells that and he does a nice job with that. And it's grueling. We cannot go one week without praising Ben Foster on this podcast. At least he's no. in the movie this time. So it makes a little <laughs> more sense. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You want to walk us through the end of the movie? All right. Let's bring it home. In the final act, Frank's plan to sow distrust comes together perfectly. Saint is convinced that Livia has been cheating on him with Quentin. So he stabs his friend to death and throws his wife off a bridge and under a train. Then Saint goes back to his nightclub where his henchmen are gathered for the final showdown. Frank arrives and armed with a variety of weapons proceeds to kill his way through all the bad guys. Frank catches up to Saint in the parking lot where he informs him he's just killed Saint's last living son and tricked Saint into murdering his own innocent wife and his best friend. Then he torches Saint in an enormous skull-shaped explosion of fire. His revenge complete, Frank contemplates suicide, but instead he decides to begin a new life as the Punisher. I bet you didn't see that coming. If I never see another fucking logo in flames, it will be fine by me. <laughs> this was like the height of it, I guess, right? But they did it. They even did it in the Dark Knight. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, that's a that's a Batman thing. The right? Dark Knight Rises, I guess. Rather, it was it was which is which is much more recent than this movie. I know they did it in Daredevil. Okay, uh, they've done it a bunch of times, but it's. Very stupid. Like, it never looks cool like they want it to. It looks like, how fucking long did this take you? Is the only thought I ever have when I see it. And, and also, wants- for whose benefit? Exactly. <laughs> who's going to see that? I guess for God's eyes, man. He's the witness to this <laughs> grand revenge scheme. I just sit there and imagine the Punisher rigging up all these cars. He's like, all right, I got to start cutting into the left here. That's where the skull <laughs> kind of comes in here. It's like oh, doing yeah. a little drawing in his head. How wide should the teeth be? <laughs> Let me narrow in the teeth a little bit. This has got to look badass. It's so stupid. But this section of the movie is where it felt like the Punisher most to me anyway. Like this is when he goes full Punisher and it, Mostly is pretty good. Yeah, it's right? it's, like, it's very solid action. First, the Othello plot pays off in this. And yeah. so we get John Travolta going into a jealous rage and flying off the handle flamboyantly for 10 minutes. Kicking all of Will Patton's furniture around. Kicking furniture, dumping jewelry boxes. He's just really pissy. And then he kills his closest people to him. I did like his, his showdown with Quentin because even up until the point where he gets stabbed, Will Patton is like incredulous. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, this, is, this isn't really a funny joke, man. That's enough now. He like, played that great. He's yeah, literally he's like, swiping at you. Stop this. What are you doing? And he's playing it pretty real. Like if that was on an HBO serious miniseries right now, he would have probably given the same performance, right? That was not a right. comic book version of that death. It's good. No, and it, you forget for a second how terrible a person Quentin is. Oh, yeah. Almost feel, same thing with Livia. Like you almost feel bad for them in that moment. But then you remember they killed like 500 people in yeah. Puerto Rico. The film was very careful to make sure that <laughs> you had plenty of justification for everyone that dies. Especially the fucking cartoon-ass death that Livia gets. She gets thrown off a bridge and then hit by a train. Like a fucking black and white cartoon. Just as you're like, holy shit, he just threw his wife off a bridge and what, she just landed in some gravel? That's terrible. She's probably- Not even water? Yeah. yeah, She's probably not even dead. And then you hear the train coming. (laughs) Silly. But I guess that's what, I mean, that's what we want. That's the good part of the comic book violence. That's like, holy shit, that was crazy. And then of course, whichever saint son is still alive is like, where's mom? And Howard has to throw the pun in there. Oh, she took the train. Oh, you. Oh, Howard. (laughs) Howard. You rascal. Even when you're exacting Shakespeare in revenge. You murdered your wife that you were very much in love with up until an hour ago. I know. And your best friend. And you should be a little more upset. And he didn't listen to one thing they said. She's like, but honey, Quentin's a gay man. And he's, you'd say anything to get out of this. Yeah. 
because you're fucking crazy. It's pretty stupid of him because you know this former FBI agent that was like an undercover specialist is after you. You don't want to stop for a second and consider that maybe he's behind all this, all this very uncharacteristic behavior that the people in your life have been exhibiting. All brought to you by the little peon that you publicly humiliated and then forced to be your fucking butt. Like, right. Maybe doubt that guy. They even make him wear your... like a butler out. He's wearing a butler outfit. Like we're not being facetious. Wearing <laughs> some ridiculous shit. And it's like, he looks like a bellhop. Cap. Yeah, yeah, he's got the bellhop <laughs> outfit and the cap. And yeah, don't doubt that guy, but your fucking wife, <laughs> she can't be trusted. And he doesn't he say something like, oh, this parking ticket is from the Wyndham, but wasn't Quentin at the Wyndham last week at this time? <laughs> yeah. How can you not see, like, you built this $100 million criminal enterprise, but you're too dumb to see what you're being manipulated here. The thing is, that's Frank Castle's whole plan is built on this little dork, like selling innocently. Whoa, what's the deal with this ticket, boss? I see your wife and Gwen, what's going on? And that's his whole murder plot. Like that has one little crack in it. Then when Frank gets to final showdown, he's like, I made you kill your wife. Like, no, I didn't. I, I figured out that that was bullshit. Like, my wife's fine. Yeah, what's stopping Mickey from being like, I don't want to be your butler anymore. So I'm going to tell you that I was put up to try to set you up by Frank Castle. Yeah. He's going to be here at this time and blah, blah, blah. You know, what? why do you trust this guy so implicitly? Not like even saying, does he have the strength as an actor to deliver these lines convincingly? Like what's stopping him from betraying you? Like he betrayed them. Exactly. It's pretty weak sauce, as I think you described it. Yeah. If you want to one-up Shakespeare, that's what you got to do. You got to go the extra mile, set up the complex plot, and then throw a bigger twist where your guy fails you in the last minute. No disrespect to Jonathan Hensley. He's written some movies. Movies I enjoy, but I don't think he has it in him to quote unquote one up Shakespeare. <laughs> I, th I think Sorry. I put those I put those words in his mouth. I don't think he thought he was one upping him, but he thought he was honoring a classic. Right. We get to the final showdown. Castle descends on the club where he's going to be taking them out. I just want to point out, and I haven't been able to find a picture of him yet. But another episode note, there is one henchman that the actor was like, he showed up to set and he had grown a ponytail, a silly mustache, and he had a pocket full of lollipops. And he was like, people are going to fucking remember me when I get killed in this movie. <laughs> He's the first one taken out at the club. And you He's did, covering yeah. the outside. Yeah. And I was like, this guy's really going for it. Oh, yeah, man. You know, look at you making the most of your role. He's decked out in unique characteristics for a henchman. I love it. The lollipop is the little kicker because you see, oh, who's this funny henchman? He's got the ponytail. And then, boop, right before he goes, he pops the lollipop in his mouth. That's when you knew he was marked for death. Uh, and then the Ashley Schaefer henchman also has a little showcase. He gets a knife through the mouth. He does that under the jaw knife thing. Yeah. Pretty popular in movies. It's pretty gruesome. It's always gnarly. I can't remember. There was one movie where someone like lived through it and was just like walking around like that for a while, but I can't Ooh. think of which one it was at this point. Now that's really um, gnarly. It was pretty gross. If anybody remembers, hit me up in the comments. The scene, even though he's got a bow and arrow, which doesn't feel very punishery, like he's doing the right stuff. The champagne bottle with the anti-personnel mine rigged underneath of it, that feels like something that would have come out of a Garth Ennis Punisher book. So now you're, you're channeling the spirit of the character without having a copy. You know, like it feels like they're starting to understand the character here when it's a little too late for the movie. Yeah, that's a good bit. He sends the bottle of champagne up the dumbwaiter and the henchmen think it's being sent by their guy, but it Punisher's already killed their guy who's downstairs and it blows them all up. But I would ask the question, why are these guys partying? Why are they having champagne? <laughs> I did have that question. Howard's saying is he's closed his club down. He's brought all his henchmen together. He's like, guys, this is it. There's a briefcase of money here. 
It's us against Frank Castle. It's do or die time. This is the final battle. We have to get tough. We have to kill Castle or die trying. That's how serious this is. And they're like, fuck yeah, boss. We are in. Give us the money. Let's go. And then they fucking get to partying. They kick back on the couches. <laughs> they light up cigars. They're popping bottles of champagne as fast as they can. They're calling downstairs for like, more. Can we get some wings? Can you, do, we, do you guys have wings? Send some it's wings like, up. Wait a minute. That's what you do when you set up for the big showdown? More Shouldn't bottles, they be doing please? like Coke to heighten their senses? And I would get, get that if they, were, if they were like, yeah, slapping each other on the face and like getting hyped. But no, Kill this motherfucker. They're literally lighting cigars and popping bottles. I'm like, wait, wait, who said party? We said showdown. I think Howard should have, if they somehow managed to make it out of this, he should have served them for a bill. Like, all right, so you guys had seven bottles of champagne. It's $300 a bottle. You smoked 18 of my cigars. Oh, we didn't even talk about the, the Cuban mobsters like looming over the whole thing because I guess they don't really matter. They do nothing. I was thinking that. So Howard is not the big boss in this movie. He's obligated to these two Cuban kind of mobsters. Yeah. yeah, he's a middleman. And so that, I guess that ramps up the pressure when Frank starts disrupting the money flow. It puts pressure on Saint because his guys are threatening him, but they actually, they don't threaten him. They just walk out and go, fuck you. That's yeah. never, he's, There's no know. resolution to like their little showdown. They're just no. Like, he, they insult his cigars and then that's it. We never hear yeah. from them again. It's not even Cuban. It's Honduran. That was a funny line, but yeah, they didn't actually add real jeopardy to Saint. Or a lot of times those kind of higher-ups are used as a method to enact some revenge on the main bad guys. You have the other bad guy take them out, but there was none of that. They just disappeared. Yeah, it's like in Heat with Van Zandt going after mm. De Niro. Maybe he got cut for time or something. I know there's Maybe. an extended cut of this movie, but I never watched it. So that did seem like a thread that got picked up and dropped. So then he's just, he's going through, he's killing everyone in pretty cool ways. I did enjoy how he takes out whichever saint kid is living. He puts a, like an eight pound proximity mine. So you look like a strong kid. You must work out. And he ties the tripwire around a lamp and the kid's trapped and puts the mine in his hand. So if he drops it, it will go off. And then you forget about it until a couple minutes later, there's a payoff, which yeah. is pretty good. Yeah. And he's talking to Howard and he's Howard's like, you killed my son. And then you hear the big explosion. He's both of them. That's good stuff. That's Punisher stuff. That's good Punisher payoff. <laughs> so then finally we we get the big bad showdown between Howard and Frank, which, to be honest, isn't much of a showdown, but it shouldn't be. We're no. dealing with one guy who's, you know, a perfectly trained killing machine and John Travolta and a bad wig is the other guy. It goes about as well as you'd expect for Howard. But then the manner in which Frank decides to kill him is just wildly theatric. So overdramatic. He ties him to a car and then puts the car in neutral. Yeah, so it starts like, rolling slowly through this parking lot that I guess is a car dealership that Howard owns, too. They failed to mention that. Yeah. Last minute reveal is they look across the street and it says St. Motors and it's a big car lot. And Howard St. is ankle is rigged up to the bumper and the car is slowly cruising into the lot and it's got another one of the remote control detonators on it. So the cars all start blowing up as Howard is dragged along and then he slowly gets lit on fire and basically burns to death while getting dragged by a car, which even for this movie feels like overkill. They felt they had to layer it on to make it justified for the finale of the Punisher, whose whole thing is punishing. But again, like you said, this is the set of explosions that makes the Skull logo. and Which is the part I hate. And so, we said, yeah. you know, apart from the eyes of God, who was witnessing this, Frank Castle does not watch it. He spent a lot of time setting up a skull. And then because he's a cool guy who doesn't look at explosions, he doesn't look at the thing he made. He walks kind cool of parallel to don't it. don't look at explosions. Let it burn and they walk away. <laughs> he, wa he walks away, man. He is the definition of a cool guy. 
guy. He did not make the cut of the video, which came out several years later, 2009. Right, it seems like an oversight. They could have cut one of The Rock's many appearances in the video and thrown Tom Jane a bone. I think it's because he walks parallel to the explosion, whereas in that thing, you have to walk towards the camera and let That's the explosion true. backlight you. He walks across, but he, again, he doesn't flinch at all. He never stops to look and go, oh, how did the skull come out? Oh, pretty nice. He never even looks, man. He just gets in his car and drives off. And notably, Howard has no idea that he's being blown up in the skull shape, you no, know, nor would he care if he did. That's right. It means nothing to anybody. It's just for us. <laughs> it's just between the director and us. Yeah, it's our little secret. So then the movie wraps up. He goes back to his apartment. He decides he's going to kill himself now that he's exacted his revenge. And then he says, no, no, I've been doing this for one specific person. Now I had to kill one group of people, but now I'm just going to kill other people other that groups. have pissed other people off in notable ways. Maybe he's going to New York where he belongs. We don't know. We never got this. Well, if you count Warzone as a sequel, I'm pretty sure they're in New York in that one. He's like, you know what? I can't end things here in Tampa. That is too small time. I got to take my act to the big city, see if I can make it there. He goes the backwards thing. Like most New Yorkers go to Tampa to retire. He starts (laughs) in Tampa and then heads to New York. It's all backwards. It's goofy. They sort of bring the roommates back into it. Dave comes home from the hospital where they took him to the shittiest Tampa hospital. He comes home in a cab with his two roommates and he's still got blood on his nose. Like they didn't clean him up. There's like a cotton (laughs) ball sticking out of one nostril. And there's these off kilter strips of gauze wrapped crookedly around his head. I'm like, what hospital did you go to? Does Dave strike you as someone with stellar health insurance? No, you're right. (laughs) They probably were like, you're never going to pay for this. Get the fuck out of here. He went to Um, the sad little free urgent care clinic down the street street not getting the best care but lo and behold there's i don't know 700 grand in their cupboard so they yeah. keep living on some together. dishes and why did they look in that cupboard that's a good point oh no the frank leaves them a note like i left you something in the cupboard oh okay now that makes more sense yeah. yeah i skipped over that and i'm like they're wandering around this totally destroyed apartment because it's still the aftermath of the russian and the bad guys tearing through there and then they just walk up to one cupboard in the kitchen and oh look three plates full of cash Thanks, buddy. Like, now we can pay the landlord back for the lawsuit he's going to file against <laughs> us immediately. Destroy this fucking house. Yeah, or flee the country quickly before they catch him down to Mexico yeah. before someone finds out. That goes beyond just keeping your security deposit. There's going to be some courts involved with the damage done to this building under their watch. All right, so that's the Punisher. You want to hear where people went from here? Yeah, what did it do to these people? Hensley didn't do much after this. So like we said, this was his directorial debut. He would go back to writing. He wrote the Nick Cage movie next. You can see like five, 10 seconds into the future, something like that. Uh, he has like very short-term clairvoyance, which is also the plot of the excellent Hold Steady song, Chips Ahoy. So check that out. Yeah, Jessica Beals in it. That's cool. Then he would direct Welcome to the Jungle, which is not the rundown. That's a Peter Berg movie, of course. Kill the Irishman, interestingly starring Ray Stevenson, who would go on to play the Punisher in Warzone after this. Interesting. And the Liam Neeson thriller, The Ice Road, recently he directed. He did some rewrites on Gemini Man, the uh, Ang Lee Will Smith movie about clones. That will be a future episode. And that thing lost a ton of money. So yeah, he hasn't done much since this movie came out. That's only three movies directed in almost 20 years. He's doing probably a lot of script doctoring work. I think that's how he made his money beforehand. He can go back to that. Let's see what Jane's been doing. So we already talked a little bit about Jane. We've had him on the pod a couple times, right? Was Mm -hmm. he just in Scott Pilgrim or did we talk about him other times? We see. We had Dreamcatcher. Yeah, one of our our seminal episodes. He was uh, the star of Dreamcatcher, really. Him and Damian Lewis. 
That's true. It was a bit of a two-hander. So he's been busy, never stops working. He was in Hung right after this movie came out, okay. the HBO show where he's he's got a big wiener is the premise of the show. Yeah, I didn't see that, but I thought that that went over pretty well with people. Yeah, it had good reviews. I watched it for a couple seasons. First show about Tom Jane having a huge cock is pretty good. And <laughs> he's been in The Expanse, which I know people are really passionate about. And I've been oh, yeah. to watch plays like a, a space cop. Like some, right. Some yeah. Kind of... I think I saw the pilot of that. I can picture him in a space trench coat and a space fedora. I've been meaning to get back to it, but there's just so much damn TV. He's been in an Australian drama, Tropo or Tropo. Okay. T-R-O-P-P-O. You figure that out. And he was in five movies in 2020 and three in 2021. So he's not slowing down anytime soon. But he never really took off as a major movie star in the way I'm sure some people hoped. He was in The Mist, which was really good. Yes. He made a little bit of money, so we won't be able to cover it here. But like when he stars in a movie, I usually check it out. He was in a movie in 2019 called Crown Vic, which I thought was good, but also kind of copaganda. Will Patton, we already talked about it. We don't have to get back into it. I think Laura Haring just retired. Good for her. She was acting pretty steadily on TV shows. She was in Inland Empire, so she worked with David Lynch in a movie. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's fun. Good credit. And she was on The Shield, Gossip Girl, NCIS Los Angeles, but she hasn't had a credit since 2018, so she might just be done. We've alluded to it in the beginning of the show, but The Punisher faced some stiff competition at the box office. It was released April 16th, 2004, and it opened in second place with $17.8 million. Do you know what movie was in first place? Kill Bill Volume 2 debuted the same week, same release date, made $32.5 million. Why would you open your R-rated revenge thriller against... Kill Bill Part 2, a much, much better R-rated revenge thriller. I mean, much more R-rated, I would say. This movie pales in comparison on multiple levels. I think Part 1 was more violent than Part 2, but there's still some scenes that are pretty tough to watch in Part 2. That, that's like direct competition, right? One movie you're going to go see opening weekend of those two, it's probably going to be Kill Bill unless you're an idiot like me. Yeah, well... At least it's not like another much better R-rated revenge thriller would release the next week. No, it couldn't possibly. Wrong. The following week, Man on Fire would debut oh. from Tony Scott. A R-rated revenge thriller that is, again, much better than The Punisher. We talked about it a little bit off the air, but yeah, I highly recommend checking it out if you're a Denzel fan, because he's like going full Denzel in this movie. He's good. That Denzel has got some acting talent. Oh, hot take there. Cool <laughs> it down, man. Going out on the limb here. On here. He's got one of my favorite line deliveries in Man on Fire, which is when he says, I wish... You had more time. It's pretty great. Out of context, it doesn't make sense. No. But you'll, you'll get it if you watch it. So yeah, Man on Fire made $29.2 million. Who fucking decided on this release date? Punisher would, of course, drop to fourth place that week and only make $8.3 million. And by its third week, it would be in ninth place with $4 million. Pretty much dead on arrival. That's just too much competition, man. It just makes you look bad. When you start talking about all the things that this movie went up against, it does sound like they either made some mistakes or if not, they were really backed into a corner for getting stuck with this date. Yeah. And the reviews weren't good. The competition was stiff. Comic book movies were not a guaranteed, you know, money in the bank thing at the time. So it's really not too hard. There really was not a ton of star power in this. Travolta was not a guy you were going to go see a movie just because he's in it at this point in his career. Jane, as much as we loved him, he's not A-list. You're not going to go see a movie just because Thomas Jane's in it. So real uphill battle for the Punisher in that regard. Tough going. And yet still, because it has that fun, hey, it's a Punisher movie and it's Tom Jane. And it had that life on DVD that was fortunate enough to come out during the very short DVD era in Hollywood where DVD sales could make some money back 
for films. It like almost dug itself out of its hole, but it was, I guess, a little too deep. Yeah, lost about $8 million, according to the reports I could find. It's not a disaster, but it's also certainly not what you hope for. Did you have any closing thoughts on the movie you wanted to hit us with, or did you get into them during the episode? I have a little final thought. Let me step out of my car onto this bridge. I just wanted to say, from this day forward, I shall be known as Ian Dukes, a person who co-hosts the podcast Blast Zone, where I will be sharing my thoughts about movies that bombed. I know I was supposed to be doing that the entire time, but uh, I'm just doing it now at the very last few minutes of the show. Well said. That's a good little voiceover voice. That's nice and crabbly. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, that is my meta commentary on the movie. At the end of this movie, the last 10 seconds, it goes, wouldn't it be fun if there was a Punisher anti-hero who went around dealing vengeance? And would you maybe watch that movie if we made it? I'm like, yeah, but you probably should have made it while I was watching. That's true. That, that's a big problem, I think, with superhero movies in general. It's more common in TV shows that are adaptations of IP. It's just takes forever for him to become the Punisher. And then when he does, you're like, that was pretty great. I wish you'd been doing that all along. If I have one thing to say about this movie, it's that it's really intense. So, <laughs> uh, so next week, we got a fun one coming at you. We're doing Sunshine. Wow. I never saw Sunshine. This is going to be a big moment for me. I'm really excited to see this movie. Great. All right. So tune in for that. Thanks, guys, for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. If you're uh, if you're enjoying the pod, especially Apple Podcasts or Spotify, a review or a rating helps new listeners find our show. Keep us going. We really appreciate it. You can follow us on Twitter at BlastZonePod. Shoot us an email, BlastZonePod at Gmail. If you have suggestions for future episodes or questions, comments, whatever, hit us up. We always love hearing from you. For sure. Then see you next time in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. We got to split, man. We got some cats we got to hang with. Bye.